This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. Says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like they do from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice together that you have installed Jesus, your Son, our Savior, as universal Messiah and King over this whole earth. And we pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we can see him enthroned and exalted and ruling over all things on our behalf. Be present with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are slowly, patiently going through a series together on the Nicene Creed, this great confession of the church from the fourth century. And today we're meditating on the ascension and the reign of Jesus Christ. And the clause that we're reflecting on today from the Nicene Creed is this one, which I think will be on the screen behind me. A single sentence, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And today we're confessing, we're joyfully confessing that Jesus was not just crucified for us. He didn't just die on the cross. And he was not only risen from the dead, as glorious as that is, and man, we were basking in the power of the Holy Spirit last week, rejoicing and singing together that Christ has risen from the dead and he's conquered death and evil. There's even more to be said than that, and that is that Jesus, the crucified, risen Jesus, has been glorified and exalted and lifted up and enthroned by his Father to be seated at his right hand to the place of supreme power and authority. And we confess together, Jesus is king. Christ is the Lord. And today we're gathered as one very small expression of the church militant, the church fighting our battles below, but we're joining with the church triumphant and the saints and the angels and all these strange creatures that the book of Revelation talks about, and we're joining our song to the unending chorus being chanted above. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I mean, we're all down here with our toils and our troubles and our snares, and the Holy Spirit is calling all of us this afternoon Lift up your hearts, lift up your eyes, fix them on Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. I don't normally saunter into TICF with my family at quarter after four, but I was sweating and cursing my printer an hour ago 
because the paper jammed, and then I didn't have enough paper to replace it with, and then the toner cartridge was only printing half the page. And there were some very un-Canadian thoughts and feelings rising in my heart, and I was ready to pick up this printer and hurl it through the window. I was so angry with this stupid thing. And then we got in our taxi, and we only realized halfway through we'd entered the wrong address, and it was headed in the wrong direction. It was a very old Yandex taxi. And it was sputtering, and it was about to stall going down the highway, and then the driver took the very steep shortcut up the hill, and I was thinking, man, we're not going to make it today. And I felt it was like the humor of God. Here you are, Bart, preaching on Jesus reigning at the right hand of God, and my stress level was just spiking, and my heartbeat was racing, and thinking, if I'm not here to preach this word, the kingdom of God is going to fall apart. Everything is going to go into the ditch And that's going to be the end of the story. And thank God that is not true. And that's just a small, silly example. But we all have this challenge, right? It's one thing to preach and to reflect on these glorious truths of Christ at the right hand of God. But here we are toiling and sweating and cursing down below. And we need, we so desperately need the Holy Spirit to take our eyes just for a moment off of ourselves And our problems, and I know there are many stresses and deep anxieties and deep pains and problems we're wrestling with today, right? But just to lift them up to where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, he's not stressed. He's not anxious. He's not sweating and cursing and about to throw a printer through the window in frustration. Jesus is sitting serenely at the right hand of God. And we need to remind ourselves Sunday after Sunday All is well with our Christ. And if all is well with Jesus, and if he is sitting calmly and serenely, reigning over all things, then my heartbeat and my heart rate can go down just a little bit as I remember that the one who died for me is in control. So, we can all take a deep breath and slow down and recenter ourselves and recalibrate ourselves and take all of our instruments which are jangly and discordant and out of tune and retune them to the note that Jesus is playing from the throne. Psalm 110, which Sonia read for us a few moments ago, is King David's prophetic vision of an even greater king. Here's David reigning over the golden age along with his son Solomon who will follow him, but there's someone even greater and more noble and more powerful, whom the Lord God has appointed to sit at his right hand as king and priest. And I dare say that this psalm is the very highest point of the Old Testament, the clearest testimony to the coming of Christ. And the reason I dare to say that is because Psalm 110 is the most quoted and the most referenced Old Testament passage in the New. It's in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 and Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1 and Hebrews chapters 1 and 5 and 7 and 10 and 1 Peter chapter 3. And really, the whole book of Revelation is just an extension of this vision of Jesus on the throne, wielding the scepter crushing and defeating all the enemies of God and his people. Time would fail us to dig into every one of these passages, but I just want to think for a second about Peter's sermon in the book of Acts. 
Acts is the second part of a two-volume work written by Luke, the physician and historian. And there's one event that Luke tells twice, once at the end of Luke and then again at the beginning of Acts, and that is the ascension of Jesus. Jesus rising up into the clouds before their eyes is the very hinge point for Luke of his two-volume work. And in Acts, he describes his previous volume as the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. The Gospel of Luke is only the beginning. It's only part one of everything Jesus did and taught. And the implication is the book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus does and teaches. We shouldn't call it the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit. These are the acts of the risen, exalted Lord through the Holy Spirit he's poured out upon his church. Jesus doesn't vanish from the scene and disappear from the story. In the book of Acts and in the church down through the centuries, even today, Jesus is at work on the throne building his kingdom. The gospel story does not end with the crucifixion or even with the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel story continues with the ascended Christ. And here at the beginning of Acts, the disciples have gathered. They've had these repeated encounters with the risen Jesus, and they're on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you guys to know the times and seasons, but you need to wait, and power is going to fall upon you, and then preach my gospel to the ends of the earth, And then before their eyes, Jesus rises up to heaven. And then Peter preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost after the spirit is poured out upon the gathered disciples and they're praising God with tongues of fire. And if you turn for a second to Acts chapter 2, where Peter quotes this psalm at the climax of his message. We're looking at Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 32, shall we say. Peter says to the assembled crowd, wondering, are these people out of their minds? What's happening? He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The Holy Spirit poured out is the sign, it is the evidence that Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. And as the church begins on the day of Pentecost, it is Jesus sitting on the throne, stretching out his scepter from Zion, and now the nations are beginning to stream towards God's holy mountain. So look around at this room for a second. You all these different faces, Brazilians, Nigerians, Russians, Georgians, Canadians, Americans, Germans, Indians, Koreans, Vietnamese, and many more. And all of us are a trophy of the power and grace of the exalted Jesus. This is the power of Pentecost that we are experiencing in a small but very real way even among us today. And it is a sign that Jesus is not dead. He's not disappeared. 
He is reigning in power. And now the kingdom of Jesus is filling the whole earth. It's expanding far beyond the borders of what David or Solomon reigned over in the glory days of Israel. Israel is now filling the whole earth. Jesus is destroying evil. He's overcoming rebels. He's freeing the slaves and the captives. And he's bringing peace and joy wherever he goes. This should enlarge our understanding of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not just about some historical facts that happened thousands of years ago. The gospel is actually still happening. Because even now, Jesus is exercising universal dominion and cosmic authority and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And I think most of us are very used to thinking about the gospel in terms of myself and my personal salvation. And very likely for most of us, that's kind of what we were taught in Sunday school, that your sin and your salvation are in the center. And Jesus kind of comes in from the sidelines and makes a way for you to have a relationship with God. But the gospel is not a story about you. It affects you. It changes and transforms your life. But it is not primarily about you. The gospel is the story of Jesus. And he is the enormous burning and blazing star around which all of reality and all of us revolve. And we need to go back a long time, hundreds and thousands of years, to understand how the gospel was proclaimed at the very beginning. And we have a wonderful archaeological example of this from the Roman city of Prien, which is now somewhere in in western Turkey. And there was an inscription that was discovered. A message carved in stone by a man who had been called to proclaim the gospel. And in this inscription, he speaks of the birth of a savior whom providence had filled with virtue for the benefit of the entire world. And this savior had arrived. He'd been sent to bring an end to war and to bring peace among all the nations. And in this inscription, we read that no one would ever surpass the benefits that this savior would bring to all of humanity. The birth of this divine person was the beginning of the good news of the gospel. For the whole world. And his birthday, the inscription concluded, would henceforth be celebrated as the hinge of all of history. The calendar inscription in Prien dates from the year 9 BC. It's telling the gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor. Because Gospel, although it literally means good news, in the ancient world had massive political implications. It wasn't so much a religious term, although you can't really separate political from religious, but it is an announcement, a political military announcement that a new king has taken the throne. And the heralds of the gospel now summon their hearers to give their allegiance to this new Savior and Lord, or be destroyed 
as rebels. That is what anyone 2,000 years ago would have thought when they heard the word gospel uttered. And now here is this Jesus of Nazareth, born from, for everyone knows, from a peasant working class family. And people are announcing a gospel about this person. They're saying, this is the Lord and the Savior of all mankind. And they're giving a message freighted with political meaning. They're not offering a message of personal salvation, of how you can now have your own individual relationship with God. If they had, the Roman Empire would have persecuted and executed nobody. Because there were plenty of mystery cults and religious movements that offered some kind of relationship like this with the God. And if that's what all what Christians were saying, they would have been ignored and overlooked by the Romans. But these Christians were going around telling everyone, Jesus is Lord. Which means Caesar is not the Lord. If Jesus is the Savior who brings blessings to all of humanity, then Caesar is not the Savior. And the gospel and the good news is not about him. It's about Jesus of Nazareth, who's not only been risen from the dead, he's now seated far above Caesar and every throne and principality and dominion and power. And we are all called to give allegiance to Jesus as our personal and as the universal Lord. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That's what the word Messiah means. Christ means anointed king. So in the gospel of Mark, Mark 1 verse 15 at the very beginning, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's all about the kingdom, the rule, the throne of Jesus. You know, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually have very little to say about a personal relationship with God or about personal salvation. There's almost nothing in there about the problem of how sinners can be justified before a holy God. So if you think that justification by faith is the Gospel or is the heart of the Gospel, you have to conclude, bizarrely, that the Gospel is not in the Gospels. I'm not saying it's completely absent. It's there, but kind of at the periphery. Justification by faith is true, a glorious truth. My personal salvation, thank God, is true, and so is yours. But those are effects and blessings and benefits of the gospel, but not the very heart of it. The heart of the gospel is about Jesus, that the crucified Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of God. This is the heartbeat of the Gospels and the heartbeat of the entire New Testament. Everything that Jesus did and taught was a proclamation and a demonstration that he had shown up to be the king. He had arrived to inaugurate the rule and the reign of God. Evil, darkness, sin, and death are no longer going to be in control I am taking back my rightful power and pushing back and destroying all this evil, and I'm going to set right everything that is wrong. 
including but not limited to the sin that we deal with in our own hearts. And I'm going to transform all of humanity and all of creation. And now we're summoned into the kingdom under the loving, peaceful, gracious rule of God to begin a new journey with Jesus. I think this is why so many Christian churches struggle with discipleship. Because if the gospel is only the story of how your sins are forgiven and dealt with and how you're justified before God, then obedience to Jesus and participating in his mission and submitting to him as Lord, well, that kind of seems like an optional extra for like the really crazy people who want to be disciples. But that's not necessary or essential. As though we could take Jesus as Savior and reject him as Lord. As though we could cut Jesus in pieces and only take the parts that we prefer. Jesus' salvation is total. And when he calls people, he summons us to give our whole lives to be lived under his reign and under his lordship. So if the gospel is the story of Jesus, then what we've been going through in the Nicene Creed over the last few weeks, that is actually a very wonderful summary of the gospel. It's telling the story of Jesus, the eternal son of God who became a human being for our sake, who suffered and was crucified and who died on the cross, who rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, soon to return and judge the world. That is the gospel. And we've just been slowly and carefully absorbing these different facets of the good news and allowing ourselves to be transformed by who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing for us. So the good news today is that Jesus is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, clothed with all power and with all authority. Jesus is not some brutal strong man who's muscled his way in where he doesn't belong. He is our true Lord and our rightful King. And Jesus is armed with all authority in order to save us and to save the world to the uttermost. Jesus possesses supreme, total, cosmic dominion. And there is not a square inch in the universe that is not claimed by Christ as his rightful due. There's no such thing as a lawless, no man's land beyond the frontiers of Jesus, where he's like, if you go there, I can't help you. It all belongs to Christ. He's the king of the entire creation. And as the king and as the ruler, Jesus is fulfilling our destiny as human beings to reign over all creation. He's the second, he's the true, he's the greater Adam who's doing what God called all his image bearers to do, to rule over the creation on God's behalf and to bring life and blessing and joy and peace everywhere. And nothing can resist the rule of Jesus. The powers of darkness 
tremble before his majesty. Think of how even in his humiliation, in his incarnation, in weakness, Jesus cast out the demons with just a word. All the Jewish exorcists were sweating and doing their incantations for hours and doing all kinds of strange things, wrestling with the demons. Jesus never wrestles with demons. He tells them what to do, and they have no choice but to obey and leave the person that they're oppressing. How much more now that Jesus is seated on the throne of all authority? Jesus came and Jesus ascended to destroy all the works of the devil, to destroy all the works of the devil, and the gates of hell cannot stand before Jesus. I know we're sitting here below feeling fear and anxiety and maybe even discouragement and depression over the progress of the kingdom in our lives and in our community around us. Maybe even we feel defeat. Jesus feels none of those things. He's sitting there wearing the crown, wielding the scepter, and he stretches it out. And at his word, all creatures obey. He speaks the word. The storm is stilled. And any power the darkness has... It only has by the express, express permission of Christ himself. There are lions, but they're chained lions. And their range is only what is allowed them by Jesus. Their power is strictly limited and controlled. And even the evil that they do is overruled and transformed by Jesus to serve his kingdom and to serve our good. Because the keys of death and hell are jingling in Jesus' pocket, right? He's the one who controls all of that. And all the evil designs against us, and don't be mistaken, there are supernatural beings plotting our downfall and destruction. All of those are being overruled by Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, why do we Christians freak out so easily? Why are we in such a lather and such a panic because this wrong political party got elected or this law was passed or this, there's this cultural movement and we're freaking out, sending emails to get donations for our movement because the gospel is under threat and Jesus' throne is shaking and he's about to collapse why on earth are we so fragile as Christians? Jesus is on the throne. We can stop and breathe and be calm. And remember that even though we're small and weak and we don't understand how things are working out, Jesus is in control. And all things, all things without exception, are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to their purpose. Not by some impersonal automatic law of karma, but because the pierced hands of Jesus are on every event that happens, directing them and steering them for our good. Of course, what Jesus is up to is 
inscrutable and mysterious. He's up there in the cockpit. The door is locked. We don't have entrance. And we're fretting in the back seat. But Jesus is in control. We don't know why he's allowing certain things and why these trials and difficulties are in our lives, why, this, why we're experiencing this evil. What we need to know is that Christ is in control. We cry out to God and ask God, why? How? God does not usually answer those questions. But what he gives us is who. This son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, who bought you with his precious blood, he is the one in command. And we're called to trust him. That's part of giving our allegiance to Jesus as king, that we're not fretting and trying to take over the steering wheel. Jesus is in control, and I can leave it with him, and I can cast all my cares upon him because he cares for me, and honestly, he can manage all that stuff far better than I can. And surely, if Jesus was willing to die on the cross for me, He's not going to abandon me now that he's seated in the place of all authority. Jesus, a human being, is sitting at the right hand of God. That's an amazing thing that Christians claim, that there is a human being, one of us, someone with arms and legs, sitting at the very highest place of the universe, governing everything. And if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has that very strange, bizarre vision by the banks of the river with all these wheels within wheels and this mobile chariot going back and forth. And then he looks up and he sees sitting on the throne someone who looks like a son of man, clothed in blazing light. And we remember that is our guy, Right? That is our cousin. That is our older brother. That is our relative. That's one of us. Not some strange beast with three heads. That is a human being sitting on the throne. One of our own people. And this king who exercises universal dominion is also our priest. He's our high priest who fully understands what it means to be a human being. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and our struggles and our frailty. And he has not forgotten his brothers now that he has come into his kingdom. And as the king priest, Jesus is using his authority, not for his benefit, but for our own. He's not the kind of ruler that's sucking the country dry and funneling everything to his secret Swiss bank account. He is blessing us with what he has, and his authority is on our behalf. And he's using his authority at God's right hand to intercede for us with power. Taking your prayers, correcting what is foolish and sinful, improving them massively for your good, and giving them to the Father. From a posture of sitting, Jesus is not flat on his face begging He's not even standing before the Father pleading. He's sitting there 
with authority, asking his father, do this for me. And God the Father is so highly pleased with Jesus' obedience, even to death. He's the one who exalted Jesus and enthroned him there. God is glad. He delights to glorify the Son by giving him what he asks. Turn with me for a second to Ephesians chapter 1, because it, it brings it out so beautifully. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul, in this letter, has so many beautiful prayers that he prays. And in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 18, he prays this prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And now here it is, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Our greatest need is for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the massive power of God for us who believe and to realize that Jesus is clothed with all authority for the sake of the church, for our sake. Jesus' kingship is not exercised for his own benefit. It's for the benefit of his people. And there's no action no decision, no decree from the throne that is not in order to bless us and save us. And that should be a thought of profound comfort to all of us who are down below struggling in the mud. Jesus is reigning for my benefit. And since you've been raised with Christ, Colossians tells us, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where we need to have our hearts. That's where we need to have our minds. That's where we need to have our eyes. Where Jesus is sitting, reigning serenely at the right hand of God. All is well with Christ. And therefore, all is well with us. Because if the head is above water, the body cannot drown. Right? If the head's above the water, the body cannot drown. Because all of our life and all of our power comes from Jesus sitting on the throne. If Jesus is universal Lord, that means there can be no neutrality. You are either with him or against him. You're either gladly submitting to Jesus or you're resisting his rule over your life. It's ultimately an issue of lordship that we all have to face. Who does your life belong to? You have to serve somebody. You're either going to serve the evil one subconsciously and unwittingly. You're either going to serve sin that enslaves you or you are going to bow the knee gladly before 
the good king who died for you. If Jesus is king, then for all of us who confess him as Savior and Lord, we're called today to do more than just say that with our mouths, right? We're invited to obey Jesus with joy. Because your life is now something over which the flag of Christ is flying. Your life is his territory. And we can have these grandiose visions of the gospel and the kingdom extending to the ends of the earth. And we need to. God is on the move. But it begins here in our hearts and in our lives. And every day we're faced with the choice, who is Lord over my life? Who is Lord over this decision? When I'm faced with a temptation to serve my own cravings and desires, I need to remember my life is not my own. I've been bought with the price. I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so the work of conquering Jesus' enemies and suppressing rebellion begins here in our own hearts, doesn't it? Taking all of our sin and all of our resistance and surrendering that to Christ, choosing by the power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's not trying to take over your life to oppress you and grind you into the dust and suck all joy from you. He wants to reign over you for your good, to protect you, to provide for you, to lead you to the feast of God in the new Jerusalem. So let's pray now that the Holy Spirit would give us that faith and that allegiance to Christ that we would exalt him as Lord. Glorious God, we thank you that you have installed your son to reign on our behalf. And we thank you that all sovereignty and dominion has been given to him for our blessing, for our eternal good, for our joy, O Lord. And we confess to you that there are areas of resistance and rebellion in our hearts and our lives, areas that we have not fully bowed the knee to Jesus. And part of the lie that we believe is that his service is not perfect freedom. Teach us that our only life can be found living under his kingship. We pray that the lordship of Jesus would be very evident in this church and that you would use us, O oh Lord, to bring many, many into his kingdom. For his glory, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.